Hi, this is Will Hatcher. I'm here with my co-host, Bruce McDonald, and this is Academics of PA. Hey, Will. How's it going? It's pretty busy. It's Master's Week here in Augusta when we're recording this, so we are the center of the world right now. Yeah, I actually don't even know when I'm, we're planning to air this, but sometime in the next couple months, so it'll be a little ways off. They can, everybody can uh, know our uh, production schedule now, because I <laughs> threw that little tidbit in there. Yeah, we're kind of front-loading everything and doing a whole bunch of recording all at once to space everything out, then coming out over the summer so we can actually take vacation. You want a summer vacation? What are the, you know? <laughs> yeah, those are overrated. <laughs> I will be in Augusta, the sunniest place in the world. <laughs> so who do we have with us today? Uh, we're excited to have Dr. Craig Meyer, who is Professor of Public Administration and Director of the School of Public Administration at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. Craig, welcome to the pod. Thanks, Will. And hey, Bruce. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. While I'm not in Augusta, uh, Omaha is actually quite beautiful and sunny today as well. So it's the sun just isn't shining in in Georgia today. Oh, but but what is the temperature there in Omaha? Well, you know, this is a, we've got a bit of a heat wave, so it's probably you know in the sixties. Wow! Oh, that is nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's all relative. I thought you were going to say it's it's sunny and warm in the thirties. <laughs> I kind of thought that's what he would say too. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe if I were back in Milwaukee, but uh, not quite here. <laughs> So, Craig, uh, you've worked in uh, both academic and practice, and one of the reasons we asked you to come on the show is that you have a fairly different professional experience than most academics. That is, in addition to being a faculty member, you also ran and were elected to political office. Can you tell us why you ran and what experience, what that experience was like? Sure. When I was at the University of, of Wisconsin, Oshkosh, where I've, I was there for, I think, about 12 years, I ran the MPA program there, I still lived in, um, in Milwaukee or a city just outside of Milwaukee. Now, if anybody from Wauwatosa is listening, they're not going to like me hearing me say that it's, it's a suburb of Milwaukee, but in a sense, it, it really is. It's still in, in the county. So Wauwatosa is a city of just under 60,000 people. And when I was talking to a neighbor, I uh, found out that she was A, on the city council, and B, she was resigning. And she asked me if I'd be interested in, in running for her seat. I figured, why not? So I ran on a very, very tight budget. Um, I the the budget for my campaign I think was about seventy five dollars, uh, and I did lots of door knocking, a few leaflet drops. There were, I think, four or five of us vying for the seat, and lo and behold, it was my, I guess it was my budgeting background, I think, that helped uh, compel me to or push me to victory. Um, it's also worth noting that this was a, a district in which Scott Walker, if you know his name, um, that's the district that he represented when he served in the, the state legislature. So that kind of gives you a sense of what the, the, the political culture was like 
in that particular district. So $75 for the campaign. That's That's a good deal. Yeah. And what you learn real quick is that this, you know, this isn't a big market, uh, you know, campaign. The, the, the representation for a city of that size was remarkable. We had a council. So it was a, a council mayor form of government. The council had 16 members and there were eight districts. So you had two representatives per district and they ran every other year. So you had a four-year term. The I think the the, the payment was about twenty five hundred dollars a year. So you know, big money campaigns and, and big money payouts, and that's what you get in in local politics. So that work on the council, uh, how's that informed your uh, teaching and research? Does in in a couple of different levels. So when I when I was on the council, I first my first committee assignment was the the budget and finance committee, and at that time I was I was merely a member. And then two years later, when the council changed over, I, w- I became chair of of the committee. And there's a couple of things that still resonate with me today. The the first is, and this is going to be very devastating to my my good friend Bruce. The the, the <laughs> first realization is that as much as we like audited financial reports, elected officials could care less. Oh yeah. So I still remember the first year that the auditing firm presented the the, the CAFR to the city council. It's a process where we have to accept it, vote on it, and, and basically it then collects dust either on a shelf or, or online somewhere until folks like Bruce and I want to dig through them at some later point in time. But I remember spending an entire weekend going through this CAFR with all sorts of post-it notes throughout it. And I was, I was ready. I was ready to engage and, and talk about this thing. And I would say about five minutes in, I looked around and the rest of the my committee members were looking at me wondering what in the heck I was doing. And very nicely, the the chair of the committee explained to me that this wasn't a, a process in which there was much dialogue. Our function was solely to acknowledge receipt of the document and let it go and, and move on to more pressing matters. Can I ask really quick, do you think part of that is that they just didn't care or that that's how it is or that they didn't necessarily know what to look for in the reports given an absence of a budgeting background? Well, I think in some respects, it's really about about process. And so at this point in time, really this was about them simply informing us that this is what the audit report is. Okay. Subsequently, I in you know, in hindsight, there should have been conversations between perhaps elected officials and the the administration about some of the findings, some of the takeaways, and, and using 
those documents for future planning, which is, I think, one of the areas that the city fell quite short. So that was that was one of them. the the other the other there's, I think there's two that still resonate with me quite a bit. That the first is the the importance of being able to communicate effectively to a, a group of people. We talk quite a bit in our classes about how important it is to to communicate both verbally as well as in written form. I can I can tell you that. By far, the most effective department heads were those who wrote memos that were in a very concise form, made their point, and they were able to articulate what it is they wanted or needed to the council in a very effective manner, which has then motivated me to change, in some respects, the way in which I assign assignments. So in most cases now, it's no longer a long research document. It's tell me in one page, you know, what the point is, how you got there and and why it's important. And I find it to be more difficult for students to actually write those type of documents than it is uh, to write perhaps what they're more used to writing, which are research, research papers. But we all know that the, many of the students that graduate from our, you know, from our PA programs, they're really not going to be writing research papers moving forward. It's going to be these shorter, concise executive documents. And if they don't have a good handle on how to do those in the classroom, my fear is that they really struggle in the, in, in the professional setting. I think my last big takeaway is some of my frustration with the way that we study local politics. And what I'm referring to is usually in the types of analyses that we do, there's either some type of dichotomous form where it's, is this a mayor council form versus a, a manager council form? assumption or the the expectation is that in a mayor council form, there's more sort of, there's more politicking going on than you find in a, in a more professional management form. And I think it's, it's does a bit of a disservice to, to locally elected officials because my, I mean, my experience, and again, it's a, this is a anecdotal, but my experience is that most local officials in these these smaller communities, if you want to say 60,000 is smaller, are really there just to make good policy, which then they're looking to the, the management team to inform them. It's less about this. We have this presumption that locally elected officials are making these short-term decisions that then set them up for re-election, similar to the way in which we study Congress. Personally, I, I just have never observed that in my years serving on the city council. We do have this large assumption that everything at the local level is about elections. Everything is about either progressing your political career forward or ensuring that it continues. And you're saying that in your experience, that doesn't really happen. 
do you think it's that people are applying perceptions of what happens at the national level to the local level or that this idea comes from someplace else? I think it's all about the application of perceptions at the national level that somehow local politics is very similar to that of of national politics. The other is perhaps one of my frustrations as a as a scholar and somebody interested particularly in in local governance is that we often make inferences based upon large cities. So large cities tend to be studied more frequently, data are more accessible, and I would argue that the politics you see in Chicago, Los Angeles, New York are not the same as you would find in the politics of cities in the 10 to 100,000 population range. But those data are more difficult to get one's hands on. And so again, we, we infer from that which we know, which are studies of big cities, your 100 largest cities, and that of Congress. And I just think that they're very different environments and I think the motivations in most cases are, are quite different. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't politics at the local level. Like, there definitely is. But the politics are, are, are somewhat different than what we as scholars infer based upon that which we've identified in these larger cities and in, in, in congressional races. Could it be that um, also, correct, that many in our field have a, a negative view of politics, that when we talk about these kind of issues in local government, and also that we make the case for our uh, field in that when we talk about forms of local government, for example, we're always arguing that city manager forms are more efficient and effective. It, we don't have a lot of empirical evidence of that, but we often argue that in our MPA programs, and we're hesitant uh, to engage in politics. Could that be some of it, too? Well, I, I think you've, I think you've actually, you hit, you've hit the the two big, the misconceptions or drivers, perhaps is a better way of saying it, of why we think about these local politics the way in which we do. One is yes, there we do have this inherent negative view of of politicians in general because. As institutions of, of practice, and that being of public management, we feel compelled, and in many cases rightly so, that somehow manager forms of government are more efficient and effective than you would find in, in mayor council forms. I would also add, and Bruce and I are well aware of this, that in most cases, when you try to study these these constructs of local government structure on major policy outcomes, most of which I study are fiscal in nature, it's rare to find that those constructs matter. And in some cases, I've found them to actually work in the opposite direction. Yeah, that's interesting, uh, and you know that's keeping with um, with uh, what I was getting at. That's worrisome. How we often in our classes point to the manager council system as the ideal form, but 
these constructs in practice don't seem to matter as much. And there's so much uniqueness among various cities that, and our students really have a hard time processing that. So I think we fall back on, well, a manager council is the best one because you may have some cities that are strong mayor systems with a city administrator that has a lot of clout with the mayor and runs it very much like a pure professional manager council system. So these constructs are hard. And I think in many ways we're resistant to talking about politics. So we just step back and say that the manager council is ideal. Agreed. And I don't think we can underscore or we can, I don't think we can say strongly enough how important local managers are in these communities. We're seeing this on a a number of instances for really small cities where clerks who basically run the entire city have very little oversight. And we do get these anecdotal stories of, you know, what happens when, when that's the case. Um, and sometimes they're not very good where you have money being pillaged from these small communities because there isn't any oversight function. But even in, in my community, again, in, in Wauwatosa, what I found really fascinating was just how powerful the administrator and finance director truly are. And so one of my examples is this this era of you know performance management performance based budgeting i i've done some work on it i did you know trainings across wisconsin i've worked with a number of counties and with some cities and yet the city that i was representing was very reluctant to move down that road and more specifically, the city administrator was interested, but our finance director was not. And what would happen is the finance director could come into a meeting and make the case that this was of little or no value to the city. And because we had a, a AAA bond rating, the highest bond rating you know that the city can have, the city's finances were in pretty good shape. What our finance director said made all the difference in the world. So even when I worked with the National League of Cities, we did training with elected officials on the importance of performance measurement, performance management, performance-based outcomes. If your leadership at the local level, administrator and finance director in particular are not committed, it's not going to go anywhere. At least that was my that was my experience. And the other thing that's really interesting too and you know Bruce may be able to speak to this, but even just the 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 type of of software that your finance department has has a significant impact on the extent to which you can do some of these more innovative uh, financial decision makings because the software just simply doesn't allow them to generate the the reports in a way that we would expect them to generate. I think 
everybody kind of imagines the softwares that governments use can do whatever you want or that it's easy for them to update to a new software, but they're fairly expensive. And it's if the current software works, why replace it? So I think there definitely is a movement of to not adopt alternative budget practices just because the cost of doing so is going to be that large. Agreed. And if you can couple that with a, a, a leader, a community leader, whether that be finance administration, making the claim that this is essentially a, a waste of resources, they don't see real benefit in it, um, that just defeats any, any effort by, um, and again, this was, this was essentially being driven by the council if for this smaller community, it, it really went nowhere. Given kind of the strength and the reliance that the local government had on the finance director, thinking back in terms of how to train MPA students then, would you kind of push more students who wanted to have a larger managerial administrative role in the local government to focus on the budget and finance side? Or where would you kind of push them to gain the stronger skills that they would need in order to be successful? Oh boy. That's a, that's a, that's a, in some respects, a loaded question. <laughs> um, you know, I, I guess what I will, I'll fall back up is I've been very active in our local government finance officers chapter. So in, in, in Omaha, Nebraska, we have the Great Plains Government Finance Officers Association. And I've been on the board for probably four or five years since, since I got to, to UNO. And Carol Epton, my colleague, and I have asked the GFOA leadership in, in the Great Plains, you know, what is it that you are looking for from our graduates? And what is often said is that we can teach these, these graduates some of the more technical aspects of the position. What we can't teach is how to, how to sort of be inquisitive, um, how to write and communicate effectively and that is really what they expect from their from our program which is somewhat difficult for you know for at least me to accept because i think i think there has to be a combination of the two students need to be able to our graduates need to be effective communicators but i also truly believe they have to be able to walk out of that program with some very practical skill sets. And in this era of data-driven decision-making, big data, whatever you want to call it, it's even more imperative that our students have the capacity to, to make sense of all of this data and information that is being thrown at them at a pretty rapid clip. I'm kind of putting this together in my head with my experience from when I worked on the Hill. One of the things that we always kind of said on the Hill was that we didn't necessarily want you to come work for us from a political science background. And everybody in political science wanted to get a job on the Hill and have this huge career and role in politics. 
but our argument was that we could teach you how the government worked, but if you came from a field or an experience that was more communicative or writing in nature, that's what we couldn't necessarily teach you as well. And everybody has always argued against that idea since I came back into you know, academia, particularly when I was in Indiana in a political science department. Everybody argued that polit the political science career and expertise mattered for staffers on the Hill. And I was like, no, it has to be communication. Everybody else had a perspective of how they viewed government was supposed to behave that was different than necessarily how it actually did behave. But I've never really kind of put that in the same context of what public administration is. And that's interesting too, Bruce and Craig. Here um, in our MPA program, some of our top students come from communication-related degrees. And it's it's something that I've pushed for is that we want students from all different backgrounds and just not political science because, um, you know, my the MPA program I did, it was 70, 80% was political science majors. And it's, huh. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was a journalism major in undergrad. I took one political science class in my entire life and I got a D minus an intro to American government. <laughs> You're going to keep that in there? <laughs> I will keep that in there. I'm proud of that one. <laughs> Well, my background is even is even a little bit more, I think in, you would say, unique these days. Um, I'm a first-generation college kid. I had really no idea what I was doing. I followed my brother, my older brother, to college and fumbled around. And then I actually I worked at, of all places, a, a gas station slash car wash. And at this gas station... I've made some friends, two of whom have PhDs. One is a biochemist. One does uh, sports medicine. Another became a lawyer. And the other was my brother who got a, a business degree at, at this car wash. And so it wasn't until I, I was thrown in that environment, I was expecting to become a machinist. I went to a trade technical, a trade high school. Uh, I was going to become a machinist. And this was in the early 80s. Can you imagine the early 80s in Milwaukee? Remember what was happening uh, to, to the industry? And it wasn't until my senior year of high school, I realized, you know, I really probably should think about a, a career and maybe I should go to college. Well, at that point, I didn't even have enough academic credits, Bruce. Um, so I got rejected from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. I had really good grades, but I had to write a letter to, I think it was the dean or somebody to, to please ad admit me. And so I got admitted on probation into undergraduate program, fumbled around at different degrees. I wound up getting a, a minor in economics and a major in international relations, and this is all poli-sci. And I figured, you know, this college stuff is kind of fun, so why not get a master's degree? I got admitted into the master's program on probation, of course, and um, really started getting into, this was a, Milwaukee at the time was really interesting because there were some pretty major people there. So we we were editing both the American Journal of Political Science and, mm -hmm. and the Journal of Politics. 
And so state and local was was really what Milwaukee was about. Decided I would stay there and get my PhD. So I've got three degrees from the same university, all in political science. My favorite story is I've never actually taken a budgeting or finance course. Um, and one of my <laughs> and one of my advisors actually said, you know, you what you should consider doing is getting a a, a minor or an area of emphasis in public administration. And so I took a, a I started to take a course with my really good friend Rebecca Hendrick, who's now at University of Illinois Chicago. I think I stayed in the class for about three weeks and dropped it and said, I don't want to do this, this applied stuff. <laughs> Graduated and I was really burned out with, with academia and took a position as a research director at a think tank in Madison, the Wisconsin Taxpayers Alliance. And I worked there for three years, did nothing but, did really nothing but study local and state budgeting and finance. I would have to go to Rotary Clubs and Kiwanis Clubs around the state and and talk on the topic of why is Wisconsin a tax hell? I'm not kidding. That was the title of the presentation. And that's what really got me into the field that I'm in. Um, and it was, you know, Milwaukee provided me with the, the analytical skill sets I, I needed. But it really wasn't until I got away from academia and started doing some real practical applied work that it all of this sort of finally fit together. Um, and, you know, it took a little bit of time, but seems to have, I guess, worked out for me in the, in the long run. So I've got no complaints. That's interesting. That's, uh, I think, a, a theme of this podcast is the importance of applied practical experience. Hopefully, a lot of our listeners are uh, junior uh, scholars and PhD students that are taking that into account. But also, that's interesting, uh, and also with you, Bruce, that uh, that the coursework you had didn't necessarily correspond with what you do now. And in a way, I was the... Uh, the same way, and I was first-generation college student and went to college in the 90s, so therefore I majored in computer science. And <laughs> that, didn't, that didn't work out so well. <laughs> but I guess it did. <laughs> the computer science itself didn't work out so well when I had advanced calculus at 8 a.m. in the morning. Oh, God. Oh, my <laughs> yeah. goodness. Yeah. I found political science after that. <laughs> but, you know, what was really interesting for me is because I, you know, I didn't have – coursework yet I wanted to do to do research on this on this topic so for instance when when I was at Wisconsin Taxpayers Alliance one of the big questions that I had was the 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 in, the relationship between the state government and local financial decision making and we would argue that one of the reasons why Wisconsin was a relatively high tax state was because a lot of state money was funneled to local governments. And it forced me to try to figure out what that looked like. 
which then led me to do a lot of research on on the flypaper effect, which then led me to introduce myself to what I would consider easily my mentor, wonderful friend, Steve Deller, who's an applied economist at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And we, I literally knocked on his door one day and said, hey, I'm, I'm interested in, in this idea. And lo and behold, he exposed me to all of this economic work as well as some, some PA work. And so what you see in some of my earlier publications are really economics and, and PA combined. And we studied flypaper effect in a number of my earliest publications. And so in some cases, what your lack of training enables you to do or forces you to do is figure it out on a much broader context to the point where I would go to conferences and because of the work I've done with Steve, I had a few people ask me, aren't you that, that economist? <laughs> and I would say, well, really, I'm a political scientist, but I, I work with economists. And the beauty of PA is that we can pull theory, we can pull um, concepts from an array of different, uh, different fields. And of course, for us in, you know, especially who study finance, economics is, is a big, is a big player. Well, one of the things I'm kind of wondering about, if you don't have the background from you know, the coursework in an area prior to you know, starting to kind of do research in the area, it almost forces you as you read the research, as you kind of dive into it, to not have the same perceptions or the same predetermined I don't know how to quite put it uh, predetermined concepts or ideas of here's what's going to happen so it allows you to take almost a more neutral stance of that subject area than you would have if you had spent all the time in the coursework of it I don't know if that makes sense to anybody but me but <laughs> it does you're not you're not bought into the uh, the I hate that we used the word but paradigms of the different areas that you're there in we go. that's yeah. what I was looking there we for go. <laughs> <laughs> but really, you're you're coming at it fresh, uh, and it's interesting with the stuff I do. I've only had one health policy class, but that's where I do a lot of my research, and uh, it's it's yeah, it's really interesting because you come at a lot of that fresh, and you you don't have the um, expectations that may cloud your judgment. So, so for us, uh, including again, including Bruce. This is this is my conundrum, and that is I have this I have this experience that led me to to where I am today. Yet I have I'm work I work with doctoral students. I could never I can I can't I have a hard time imagining giving advice to a doctoral student to follow my path. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I laugh because that's fair. Not that your path was bad, but because I tell mine the same thing about me. And it's, you know, and, it's, and this kind of goes back to, I think, one of the comments, you know, that I listened to in one of your podcasts from, you know, that included Don Kettle. And it's this idea, you know, we, we, we want to 
train our doctoral students to have a a a, a plan, right? And, and and Don Kettle, who, by the way, I am a have been an admirer of from my days in Wisconsin when when he would chair these blue ribbon commissions on how to make local governments better in Wisconsin. But this idea that, you know, he, these ideas come to him and he's, he's more than happy to, to shift his research focus based upon a, a, a topic that, that's compelling and, and interesting to him. I've done that. Bruce, I, I know you much better than Will. I clearly know that, that you've done that as well. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's, I think it, it becomes, it's somewhat perhaps dangerous to, to instruct those who are you know, pursuing a PhD and want to get themselves going as a scholar to do something similar. I think once you're kind of established, it's probably more okay because people know who you are and kind of where you fit. If you're somebody who's looking to kind of go on the market and you're kind of bouncing around, it's harder to convince a search committee that you fit within them unless they're just looking for, you know, a generalist or somebody who is kind of willing to help out or willing to chime in at any point that's needed. Yeah, there are these boxes, you know, that you want to fill with a new hire, right? Right. <laughs> and so if they don't if they don't click those boxes, uh, that becomes a problem, but the, the 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 generalist idea. We we did a search uh, for a a generalist this past year, and that was perhaps one of the more exciting searches because you did get to see a a broad array of of candidates, which then allowed us you know more opportunities to really kind of figure out who is the the best fit not only for filling that you know that that gap that we have in course instruction but more importantly how they they fill a, a gap from the perspective of sort of larger theoretical thinking um, and it was a really exciting you know process that that the, the committee and then the school as a whole went through. Well, you posted a story from the Chronicle, I think, yesterday on Facebook, talking about kind of how we have gotten to the point where we have a little bit of a diminished perspective of academia. I think that was you, at least, right? I yeah, I believe so. Yeah, well, <laughs> I tweet a lot, so <laughs> it, it may be hard to keep up. <laughs> It was either you or it was Chris Goodman, but I think it was you because if it's a news story, it's usually one of the two of you. <laughs> but I recall reading in there that part of this decline of the perspective of the faculty was that we've done to faculty kind of the same thing that we did to doctors. That is, we've pushed people away from being generalists and pushed them to being specialists, which has kind of left this large void for the disciplines. Mm-hmm. And we're we're a little bit different here because we don't have a phd program um so when we do searches we um we tend to have um an idea of what specifically you know with specialists what we need but oftentimes all our searches are for journalists because of teaching at the mpa direct uh, mpa level you know you can mix around a little bit so but yeah that the uh 
that is my worry also that we push in what other professions have done away from being journalists into being very narrow and with public administration being so multidisciplinary and fields touching you know one another that may be a disservice so let me throw a, a, a question to you two then, and that is, to what extent do you think this obsession that we have with with rankings, um, especially via U.S. News and World Report, has helped or created more problems along these lines that we're discussing for, for MPA programs? Oh, God. <laughs> because let me give you so and what i'm suggesting and, and what i'm just i guess i'm throwing out here is the idea that you know we in in this era of of trying to to demonstrate that you know that we're relevant right we want to show that via some means and u.s news rule report seems to be that well not only does U.S. News and World Report, you know, rank you in just sort of general programming, but then you have all of these 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 specialties, and so I can see programs gearing themselves in a way that enables them to to maximize their reputation in some of these some subfields, which could then be to the to the detriment of the the broader perspectives as they relate to PA. I, I agree, just from training MPA graduates too, because the uh, nature of your cohorts and students change over time. So if you go down one route where you're really focused on nonprofit, for example, that may be what your current uh, group body of students really is interested in, where they're getting positions. But then in the future, something may change and you have uh, an increase in a local military base where there's maybe a more emphasis of students coming in that are interested in federal employment. Uh, so it's, yeah, so that chasing the uh, specialty uh, focuses can lead you down those kind of routes. Well, I mean, we all know that the ranking system is fairly arbitrary in the first place. But if you look at the rankings, you have places like FSU, who hasn't had a person who does big-scale budget and finance since Robert Ager and David Matkin left. There's Earl Clay, who's there, even though he's about to retire this year, but that's only a little bit of what he does, and he's been more or less out of the area for a while. And yet it's still ranked as one of the top budget and finance programs in the U.S., and that's been eight years or so. You know, there's the infamous kind of legend of, I think it was Cleveland State who was ranked in urban, even though they hadn't had an urbanist for well over a decade. If you're at Cleveland State and that's not accurate, I apologize. I've never actually double-checked, but it's one of those stories that gets packed on that. <laughs> we may be going down a route now where we're decreasing our <laughs> listeners for the pod, bro. <laughs> yeah, I might have just excluded an entire section. Just all of a sudden, the interview jumps. <laughs> but I, I agree. It's it's you know the way we do uh, the rankings too with the uh, surveying MPA directors and school heads is that it it pushes like places where a lot of graduates go into academia will more likely increase and in, uh, and benefit from that, uh, and then people in places that may have had a certain focus years ago will still 
keep that focus and ranking because of the folks out in the field that are taking the survey know it as having that emphasis. It's got really quiet now. I think I think we're contemplating going yeah. this route What's, for the how are we gonna pivot? <laughs> <laughs> I you know, to not to talk uh most of the podcasts about the rankings, but the US News and World Report is something that I think carries a lot of clout because A, we can uh use it with policymakers. You can show the statistics of how your program's doing well with job placement and retention rates and all that, but that at times may seem to matter more. And then uh, also it, the uh, general public seems to, or potential students or potential supporters seems to recognize that more than a lot of the other performance measures that we may use. No, I think that's a nice pivot because from my standpoint, ranking of NC State only ever comes up when I'm talking to potential students. And it's usually less in terms of going, hey, here's what our ranking is. And me going, Rankings don't matter. Getting a job matters. <laughs> and you know, if you want to get a job, we have a fairly decent placement rate of all of our students on graduation. Taking that and then kind of moving that over to you know the management of programs and everything else, a little bit of a jump in conversation, but it's the closest I now have to a pivot. Or from your past experience with the city council and then your experience now as the director of the School of PA at Omaha, is there kind of a big difference between the herding of cats of cats as faculty versus their herding of cats as city staff? Oh boy. Um, well, so again, I think it, it's a matter of, it's a matter of roles. <clears throat> and so what I mean by that is as a, as a school director, you know, one of my primary roles is, you know, is is working with and working with staff and in and faculty and there's a there's a great article in the the chronicle of, of higher ed that, that speaks to herding um, faculty as as you do cats. And the, the beauty of it is you know we don't I don't really we don't really want to to manage and, and sort of herd faculty, right? They they all one of the beauties of being in academia is that each one of our colleagues brings certain skill sets, certain levels of, of interest in in areas, whether it's research, whether it's maybe even pedagogy, and, and whether it's service. And so I see my role as that of trying to give faculty as much latitude and resources necessary to to fulfill their their interests because if faculty are happy I'm happy and it it really does you know this this issue of or this concept of of organizational culture is is critical. When I think about my role at, on the city council, I take a very different perspective. Hurting staff really shouldn't be my function. That should be the function of of the of the professional leadership. And so, what? I would compel them 
to do is to put me in a position to make the the most effective policy choice. And one of the things I found fascinating is that we we train at least I know I do. I'm sure that that you know that you too as well. We think of our of administrators position. This is that politics PA dichotomy perhaps we all have issues with. But the idea is that leaders, administrators, you know, bureaucrats, department heads should present us with some policy options with some pros and cons that then we as a council can deliberate and come to a consensus on what that policy decision should be. One of the things I learned real quick, again, this is this is a, a one city case study anecdote. That model doesn't work. What and what I found really interesting is that the council wanted to be told more times than not what decision they should make. So what they what we what the council really wanted was to say, here's here's the issue, here are policy options. And in my opinion, this is the decision that should be made. Now we as you know, as as PA instructors, we have all kinds of problems. I think I, I know I have all kinds of problems with that. I mean that's that's just not I don't think that should not be the the role or function of those department heads. But how do you train <laughs> how do you force that that change in mindset that you know that me as a department head of public works should not be telling you what the appropriate decision should be that's that's your function i had um i experienced something similar when i was uh on the board of adjustment for zoning in kentucky richmond kentucky and that we wanted just not the technical, the board wanted just not the technical explanation of the request for variance and conditional use, but also what should be done, even though that was the board's role, a citizen board. They wanted the planning department to uh, to send a recommendation to, and the planning department never did that, which I think was good on their part, because then the board could talk broadly about what should be done. And I just think it gives it gives too much power to you know to certain to certain functions within the the city government and i think it it diminishes the the role that elected members should be playing we i mean think about we had so my my example is we had a a, a major project that involved uh, we needed a new a new fire station, right? The city's population was shifting, and we were looking at the uh, the possibility of spending you know multi million dollars on a new fire station. And so, who did the council look to? The council looked to the fire chief, and the fire chief 
would easily say this is where the station should be and this is these are the amenities that we should have in the fire station <clears throat> and this is what the budget looked like the alternatives that he presented were well if you don't want these amenities consider scaling back on these amenities and as a a member of that body you know i wanted to actually take a step back and pose the and ask and i did ask the question you know is a new fire station the most efficient and effective decision at this time i mean we're we're literally butting up against the city of milwaukee um and why not work with a, a partnering community to perhaps share service delivery, move into some contractual arrangement. And that never, that never really materialized. It was, you know, it's these, these local political fiefdoms that we, we can't work with. We can't work with the city of Milwaukee for, you know, they came up with a couple of reasons, but never was there really an analysis truly done of of policy alternatives. It was merely the fire chief saying, this is what I want, basically. This is what it looks like. And you as a council can argue about the 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 breadth of amenities that that will be in the fire station. Craig, Bruce tried to uh, bait me with the use of herding cats because he knows that um, I'm a fanatic <laughs> about cats. And I can't. Go- and it seems like uh, I managed with our podcast with Don Kettle not to talk about cats, but he pulled me in on this one. That was actually not intentional either. I, I don't know. I think it may have been. Uh, we, uh, we, uh, we have seen your videos on Facebook where you're herding your cats through snow. So. So I think that yeah. may have been subconscious on Bruce's part to use that language, <laughs> but I think he's trying to pull me into talking about my cat. <laughs> oh man! Well, I was afraid this was going to come up because I you didn't. I think I was forewarned. So I am a a true cat person. Everybody who knows me knows this. Um, I've had cats my entire life. We have four here, um, and the I think. One of the, the the favorite experiences that we have is we let our cats outside, but we don't let them roam. They're actually in harnesses and leashes. And so usually people are walking their dogs next to our house. And then they will see these four cats kind of running around the yard with, with leashes on. And uh, it, does, it does make for quite the... Uh, Quite, quite the experience, <laughs> but yes, we. I am. I'm. Yeah, I'm a pathetic cat person. <laughs> I have no, I have no qualms about it. But yeah, they kind of run the house here. There's, there's no doubt about it. And so, one of the stories that that that's been coming out lately has been that do cats know their names? Mm-hmm. And so there's this my my favorite title, and this is maybe why I love cats. Is uh, it was something to the effect, yes, cats know their names, but they don't care. <laughs> yeah, I saw that article. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, we have a um, 16 pound Norwegian forest cat, and um, we uh, purchased a backpack to put him in uh, to go on walks because he won't go into the harness. And uh, it's it's literally called a fat cat backpack. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> and he wasn't a fan, though. He wasn't a fan. He was actually too big for the fat cat backpack. So <laughs> <laughs> poor guy. I think on that note, we are about out of time. So we should say thank you to you, Craig, for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Craig. It was great talking with you. Back at you, Will. 